0: Visiting scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute, and my day job is teaching law and other stuff at the University of Richmond. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss a recent decision of the United States Supreme Court in the Hall case, a case that arises in the context of Chapter 12. A case that directly implicates not only the bankruptcy code but the internal revenue code. Each standing alone is complicated enough when the two run together. uh, It's enough to make me grateful that on this podcast I'm joined by people that understand both. Uh, I'm being joined by Susan Freeman, who practices law in Phoenix, Arizona, and was the attorney in the Supreme Court for the halls. I'm also being joined by Joe Piper of the Iowa Bar, who wrote an amicus brief in this case together with Jack Williams, a law professor uh, at Georgia State. Just to be sure that our audience has an understanding of the Hall case, Susan, could you sort of get it started by talking with us about the issue before the court and what it was that was argued to the court and what it was that the court decided?
1: Sure. Hall construed Bankruptcy Code Section 1222A2A, and I called that the farm sale statute in the argument to the court because there are way too many numbers in this case. That section of the code demotes the Section 507 priority claims of governmental units arising from the sale or other disposition of farm assets in Chapter 12 cases. And it treats them as unsecured claims as long as the debtor receives a discharge. The court held in the case that capital gains income taxes due to a farm sale during a Chapter 12 case for an individual debtor do not qualify for this special treatment. Um, and that means that the taxes can't be paid from the sale proceeds and they're not, the tax claim is not dischargeable and it has to be paid by the individuals after the bankruptcy stay expires.
0: Uh, so, Susan, so- I take it a critical fact in this case is – the time relationship between the time of the filing of the Chapter 12 petition and the sale of the farm?
1: Yes. Family farms often have really low tax bases because the property's been in the family for generations, and then the values escalated, and the farm property was used to collateralize loans. And then we had the crash in the market, and the prices dropped, but they still substantially exceed the low basis. So you have huge administrative expense claims, and, and certainly – um, historically, the IRS had sought administrative priority for taxes incurred in bankruptcy reorganizations, including as a result of asset sales, um, until at least the farm Sales statute stripped that priority, um, and then the IRS uh, seemed to reconsider its position on this. So, so the court's analysis here turns on the meaning of the administrative expense claim um, section dealing with taxes, 503B1B, which makes any tax incurred by the estate into an administrative expense priority claim under 507. Um, and the halls argue that incurred means to take on liability. And we argued that the estate consists of property that's operated and liquidated for creditors that can generate taxable income. And we said that an estate comes into existence <clears throat> upon the petition filing And the assets are operated or sold and generate income. And in that context, the estate incurs liability for resulting taxes, just like it incurs um, liability for the light bill to to operate and preserve and and use these assets. And we said that um, payment of income taxes should not be divorced from income, but should be paid from the proceeds of bankruptcy estate assets that were used in operating the estate um, unless you have a specific exception, which you had in this case. And, in fact, the assistant um, SG agreed in his oral argument that this is the usual practice, and it's just, this, I think, a basic principle of bankruptcy administration. Um, but in his brief, the solicitor general argued alternatively that the farm sale statute only applies to priority claims and administrative expenses aren't claims, um, And we said, no, you know, especially look at like this amendment to 507a8 that really undercuts that. And we cited a lot of code provisions and even Supreme Court cases that said these are claims. Um, And then number two, they argued that Chapter 12 plans don't provide for administrative expenses, which are paid separately and wholly outside of the plan, as in Chapter 13, they said. Um, And we cited a number of code provisions that say plans must provide for administrative expenses and they're expressly discharged upon plan completion, and we distinguish the Chapter 13 law. And then they said, number three, that post-petition taxes are not administrative expenses at all in Chapter 12 individual (coughs) cases because an individual debtor is not a separate taxable entity under Internal Revenue Code 1398 and 1399. Um, The dissent responded to all three of the arguments, and the majority focused on the third and, to some extent, the second, And in effect, what the court said was that these taxes in individual Chapter 12 cases are not administrative expenses payable by the bankruptcy estate because it's not a separate taxable entity. So basically what we argued to the court was that these two sections of the Internal Revenue Code established different income tax treatment for two classes of debtors depending on whether their post-petition income was part of the bankruptcy estate. So you have number one, all Chapter 7, and at that point, um, individual Chapter 11 debtors whose post-petition income is not a <clears throat> property of their bankruptcy estates. And then you have, number two, the non-individual reorganizing debtors whose post-petition income is part of their bankruptcy estates. And so in the first kind of case, you have a separate tax ID number that is obtained um, by the estate for the taxation of the income from asset sales that the trustee pays, and the debtor pays taxes on its post-petition non-estate income. And then in the corporate Chapter 11 cases, um, and, and we think really in the Chapter 13 as well, where the debtor in possession or, or the trustee if it's displacing the debt is responsible for paying taxes on the income that is property of the estate. Um, and we argued that this doesn't make the DIP or the trustee personally liable or this non-chargeable, um, and that instead what this means is that the DIP is supposed to use estate funds as the authorized agent of the reorganizing bankruptcy estate. The court, on the other hand, said, all right, incurred by the estate under 503B1B um, is a – you only have it incurred by the estate if it's a tax for which the estate itself is liable. And it said – that taxes on income generated from estate assets um, are not collectible from asset proceeds. They're not dischargeable in a Chapter 12 case. And it supported this um, really with with two um, main arguments. One was Section 1305, dealing with taxation in Chapter 13 cases, and the other was 346, dealing with state and local taxes. So um, 346 is the first and I think the main hook. It says that 346 says that where there's no separate federal taxable estate, then income that is taxed to or claimed by the debtor may not be taxed to or claimed by the estate on the state tax returns. And the court um, seizes on that language and applies it. Um, we, we said that's really inconsistent with the overall bankruptcy code, and that's inconsistent with the historical treatment of taxes as administrative expenses in Chapter 11 cases, where you also don't have a separate taxable estate, um, and we focused on the reasons for the separate taxable entity provisions in the Internal Revenue Code. Um, interestingly, the court looked at um, 346 as drafted in 1978, and it focused on language at that time to the effect that in the Chapter 13 case, income would be taxed to the debtor and not the estate, but it did not address another subsection of the 1978 version, the one that we argued, um, original 546E, which makes it clear that a federal tax in a reorganization case is an administrative expense, um, but it's just not deductible like other administrative expenses. And then you have the, the court's second rationale, and that was analogizing Chapter 12 to Chapter 13 provisions and case law. Um, we had argued that Chapter 12 is a hybrid between a Chapter 11 and a 13. We said it's much more like Chapter 11 in many respects because a farm reorganization is a business reorganization, and most Chapter 13s are just individual wage earners. Um, The court cited to a lot of Chapter 13 provisions that are similar to those in 12, but it didn't cite the Chapter 11 counterparts that are also similar. Um, And then it focused on 1305, um, which gives the taxing authorities the option to file proof of claim for taxes that become payable to a government unit while the case is pending. Certainly, we pointed out most Chapter 13 debtors are not sole proprietor businesses, and they don't sell property during that brief you know, month or two administration period. And most of the time, that time period does not encompass April 15. And April 15 is when the IRS contends that taxes um, for the prior year become due and are those incurred. Um, and, and most Chapter 13 income taxes instead are really incurred post-plan confirmation um, they, they're they not in huge amounts, given that these debtors are insolvent in the first place and don't have a lot of income. And, and they're deducted in the calculation of disposable income that's used to pay creditors under their plan. And if they don't pay it, then their case can be dismissed under 521J, of the bankruptcy code. Um, but the Supreme Court looked at this 13-case law, and it says – In Chapter 13 cases, post-petition liabilities are of the debtor alone. They're not collectible or dischargeable unless you have a 1305 proof of claim. And it said Chapter 13 case law is reliable. Authority in Chapter 12 um, didn't really focus on the difference between them. Um, Said absence of a 1305 counterpart in Chapter 12 only clarifies such taxes fall outside the plan. Um, Didn't address the difference in the Chapter 12 disposable income provision. Um, and the thing I think that's most telling really about this case is that the majority appeared to be really concerned with the impact that a decision for the farmer might have in Chapter 13 cases. Um, it said any conflicting reason reading a 503B here could disrupt settled Chapter 13 practices. It said Chapter 13 filings outnumbered Chapter 12 600 fold. Um, that adopting petitioners reading a 503B would mean in every Chapter 13, the government could ignore 1305 and expect priority payment of post-petition income taxes in every plan, and this would threaten ripple effects beyond this individual case for Chapter 13. Um, so so it really was, was not following our argument. Um, we had said administrative priority would only extend to taxes that would inc- be incurred during this brief period of, of bankruptcy case administration, post-petition, pre-confirmation, and that would just not be disruptive in the vast majority of Chapter 13 cases. Um, and the dissent, if you looked at it, it recognized that in some Chapter 13 cases it says taxes on income earned pre, post-petition, pre-confirmation are not incurred by the estate, um, but it said we don't see the serious harm in treating taxes um, during this period as administrative as um, in a 12 or a 13, given the short period of time. Um, and, and we can really see the debate that was uh, apparently going on in this regard. It did not, the dissent did not focus on the alternative argument that 1305 really applies to taxes that are payable to a governmental entity while the case is pending um, versus 503, which talks about incurred by the estate. So the court could also have said. All post petition taxes are payable. Um, and well, Susan, let me let seize on that. Susan, let me
0: seize on, on that and just sort of move to, to the next stage of, of, of this brief podcast. I think you've given us a, a good understanding of the issues before the court, uh, what was argued to the court, and which arguments the court tended to borrow, and and which arguments the court either ignored or rejected. Uh, I wonder, given, Susan, particularly everything that you've said, not just about Chapter 12, but but about Chapter 11 and 13, Joe and Jack, but but including Susan as well, of course, could we now shift the discussion looking to the holding of the Hall case? Uh, Can you all talk a little bit about the impact of the holding of hall going forward in 12s and possibly in 11s and 13s as well.
1: Uh, Let let me make just one statement then about the 11, because I think that was the other really important thing um, in this. Uh, you, You have the fact that they're concerned about the impact in 13s, but then the other thing is that they find a way to get out of the impact on 11s because that was one of the really big things we argued. We said the the 12 provisions apply equally in an 11, and this would be a real disaster in Chapter 11 cases if, in fact, you don't have administrative expense priority for the taxes that are incurred post-petition, pre-confirmation. And we said that you've got all these cases, like like Nicholas and Nolan from the Supreme Court, that said um, it is um, an administrative expense. And what the court said was you have this Internal Revenue Code provision that a trustee in a corporate debtor case must file tax returns, and so he may shoulder the responsibility that parallels that borne by the trustee of a separate taxable entity. And so that's, that's the way it got out of the impact on Chapter 11. And, and if it hadn't gotten out of the impact on Chapter 11 and hadn't been con- concerned about the impact on 13, I think it would have been really different.
2: Yeah, this is, um, I think the the Hall opinion uh, does provide uh, some insight on on two points. The the more specific point, the Chapter 12 point, mm-hmm. is that it uh, essentially eviscerates the 2005 amendments. Now, part of the problem is in artful drafting um, in, that led up to the 2005 amendments and their embodiment in uh, 1222A2A, but the other part was that they're... with Chapter 12, we're we're operating on a a peculiar substantive chapter for relief because it does borrow from, it borrows language from uh, Chapter 13, but as Susan pointed out, it also borrows language and context from uh, Chapter 11. The other problem is that the Internal Revenue Code provisions that the court focused on were part of the Bankruptcy Tax Act of 1980. 26 U.S.C. section 1398 and 1399. And they predate Chapter 12 by about six years. So they weren't contemplating the Chapter 12 um, uh, uh, substantive uh, relief provisions at all when they were designed. And a lot of the difference uh, between 1398 and 1399, as Susan has um, identified, was driven by the fact that Back in the day before the 2005 amendments, post petition income under 541A6 in both a 7 and an 11 with an individual debtor uh, did not constitute property of the estate. So, 1398 was a way in which to effectuate a, a more robust discharge for an individual debtor, um, particularly when you didn't have the administrative inconvenience of accounting for post-petition income, since it belonged to the debtor anyway in a individual Chapter 7 and 11. And uh, the Chapter 12 case, the post-petition income is going to be uh, generally property of the estate, uh, but that's precisely how we now treat under 2005 individual Chapter 11 cases. So the justification between um, the entities under 1398 being taxable. And all the others um, being uh, not recognized as a separate taxable entity really doesn't exist anymore. And so what we have in Hall, and I know Joe's going to talk about it from a from a very practical and important perspective, is um, this problem. This almost an, not almost it's an anomaly. The specific problem is that you do have some case law now, particularly in the Eighth Circuit. Um, that states that if you uh, are smart and have time and don't have a lot of pressure from your creditors, uh, you can facilitate various types of transfers and use what um, the farm sale statute or what i just called uh, the priority stooping provision of chapter 12. But if you administer these assets in the bankruptcy case itself, that is post-petition, then Hall uh, applies and you will not be able to employ as an individual chapter 12 debtor, section 1222, A2A. That's the the specific, the more general, and then I'll hand it over to Joe to talk about um, the practice areas, is that if you take Hall and combine it with two chapter 13 cases, you get a pretty good insight on how this Supreme Court is going to engage the bankruptcy code and discern or divine its understanding. If you take a look at Hall and the Lanning case, and the uh, Ransom case, two Chapter 13 cases, you'll see there's a refrain, and that refrain um, is text, context, and purpose. They're gonna start with the text of of the code, then they're gonna look at the internal context and external context of the code to try to understand it. And then in in Lanning and Ransom, those two Chapter 13 cases, purpose seemed to serve a very important role not simply just a test of the absurd, but to provide some insight. Um, those two opinions were eight to one opinions. Now, in Hall, what happens is the purpose is clearly on the side of Susan's client. There's no question that was the role of, um, uh, of this legislation and there's no question that Hall eviscerates it, but it looks like at least five members of the court uh, have um, relegated the purpose component of that refrain for statutory interpretation to something akin to a a test for the absurd. If it clearly is absurd, um, then purpose might have a role. Other than that, it was pretty much sidelined in Hall, and the focus was on a particular narrative that the court developed, or at least five members, based on their assessment of the text and the context in which the language played out.
0: Jack, I want all of us to come back to, to that last line of thinking before we're done. But for now, Joe, could you talk with us more specifically about Hall and in particular how it's going to impact on Chapter 12 practice?
1: Certainly.
3: I'm going to pick up a little bit of where Jack left off. While the three of us would agree that the purpose uh, should have been uh, the primary part of the refrain and not the afterthought for the Supreme Court, leaving that aside, We're left with the wreckage that we have after a fall of Section 1222A2A. So what the practitioner needs to do, representing the Chapter 12 debtor or family farmer coming into the office, is to ascertain does any of my reorganization that I'm contemplating, will it engender uh, tax consequences? So you've got to be working with the tax preparer. You need to know your basis. You need to know if I'm going to sell. You need to know if you have... uh, other tax goodies such as credits, do I have loss carry forwards to offset that gain such that if we're selling assets that I'm not going to have a big tax burden. If you have those, then you'll be able to move forward and do it post-petition in the year of filing the bankruptcy or later. If, on the other hand, when you do your analysis, you find out that your plan Will lead to a lot of tax that you can't cover with uh, either losses or credits, uh, then you need to be looking at saying, I need to complete that in the tax year before filing. So that we get this in context, assume that you've got a calendar based taxpayer and they come to you in December, they have to, and they want, they're going to need the tax. Uh, priority stripping provisions of the Farm Tax Act, they're literally going to need to close the sales by December 31 so they can file a bankruptcy January 2nd or if they don't get them done till January they're going to wait till the following January so they can deal with the tax. Now one thing the farmer has going for it that other debtors don't have is that you cannot file an involuntary against the farmer. At the same time Slugging it out and waiting for the year, in my example, where you don't close till January and you have to wait till the following January, can be a really long, tough road to hoe. So the first thing you need to do is do your tax analysis and get your plan going. Now, you've got to be figuring out your plan, when in most instances the farmer, like the one I met with today, hasn't done any basic uh, information gathering, They may not have done any balance sheets. They probably haven't done cash flows or enterprise analysis to have any idea where they're really at. They're too busy farming as opposed to doing the business operations. If they're too busy doing the farming and nobody's helping them with the business operations, uh, the analysis, then they have no idea what they ought to be doing. And unlike what we'd like to do in a bankruptcy, which is to set up an do our analysis after we file the bankruptcy. In Chapter 12, we have to do our analysis before the bankruptcy, not only the business analysis, but the tax analysis. If we don't do it, we can get stuck in what I would call the worst of all worlds. And that is, like the halls, the halls individually are going to be liable for the tax. And it will go back to a bankruptcy case out of Massachusetts called the Brown case and in Brown an interest in real real estate was sold and the court there said the excess over what it took to pay a secured creditor would go to pay unsecured creditors not be saved to pay the IRS and after the bankruptcy Mr. Brown was going to be stuck paying the IRS so We have this anomalous situation where if you do your reorganization and do your uh, sales in a 12, since it's not an administrative expense priority, I think you can get your plan confirmed. You're just going to have the taxing bodies chasing you after your discharge to collect that tax. So that's why it is of vital importance that you start with and get your tax analysis. You do a plan analysis and tax analysis before you file and figure out when, your timing has to occur. Now that would mean in many instances, uh, what I found in many of my cases where I'm working with them, is I have to get the secured creditor on board to understand in advance that the farmer is willing to do a partial liquidation in order to pay down the secured debt, but he's going to probably need some cooperation from the secured creditor so that we can deal with the tax. And that may mean that Uh, We do a liquidation or partial liquidation pre-petition, and then the bank understands that we will be 12 so we can deal with the tax. Uh, And that takes an education job on behalf of debtor's counsel. You've got a lot on your shoulders up front, and you have to start out with figuring out where your debtor is. You have to get them functioning again because in many instances they're not. So then they're going to do the business analysis, the tax analysis, and then you've got to educate your creditor once you've done all that. So an awful lot hits your shoulders very fast uh, when you take on one of these cases, so you can make sure that you don't walk your farmer into the tax booby trap left by Hall.
1: Joe, what about um, trying to convince the uh, secured creditor to let the debtor just incorporate and then and and have the debt... Um, Transferred to the corporation and the individual debtor would continue to guarantee it, but you would then have the, the bankruptcy by a corporate um, chapter 12 debtor and have the liability that of a corporation.
3: I think you've got a problem there, Susan, and the problem would be this. If you read the definition of the family farmer,
1: mm-hmm.
3: the family farmer has to, have, and you're now going to say the family farmer will be the corporation the corporation has to have greater than half of its income from farming in either the tax year before filing or in the second and third tax years before filing under 101.18a. So if I form a corporation and am able to get uh, the corporation formed, we're probably in its initial year of uh, uh, existence. So, therefore, it won't qualify as a family farmer, so it won't qualify to file at Chapter 12.
2: And I also think you could uh, easily be attacked as a sham transaction. Yeah, I was going to say you would also find, because we've seen this in other contexts in bankruptcy tax, you could also find the service coming in and uh, concluding that it's. uh, um, under the uh, court holding doctrine or the step transaction doctrine, right. that, that it, all of this should be collapsed. So in essence, you disregard the court entity. Or where we've seen conversions of various entities on the verge of bankruptcy because of tax concerns, we see um, a tax as constructive fraudulent obligations under 548.
1: Not good. What about What about filing an 11 instead of a 12?
3: Well, as the individual, you could file the 11, but you don't have the uh, priority-stripping provisions of um, 1222. So to the extent that there is tax and the individual files the 11, it now is the administrative expense priority that you've got to pay in full. And if you need the tax benefits, you can't get there.
1: Mm-hmm. Would, would you have to be concerned about just how long your chapter 12 case is going to drag out because as i read the court's opinion all of the taxes post-petition all of the income taxes from farm operations from wages that are earned all of those are not administered a priority so if you have a case that's going to last for a couple of years that could be a pretty big hit on that individual
3: absolutely and that's one of the things that uh, comes out in here is the fact that, in light of Hall, one of my questions is, should any uh, employment should any federal withholding be done of a Chapter 12 or Chapter 13 debtor? And my answer is no. In light of Hall, since this is income and it's property of the estate, because the debtor's wages are property of the estate, if you are withholding, uh, you're taking property of the estate to pay a tax uh, which is the responsibility of the debtor not of the estate since we don't have a separate estate
1: yeah and, and note that the um, the opinion footnote 10 expressly reserved opinion on whether employment taxes would be the necessary expenses of preserving the estate
3: okay right. but now Susan let's take that one further what about the normal uh, – they reserve that opinion on that. What about the question of the general operation of the farm and the taxes on that? Would that be also covered under footnote 10?
1: Good question. Good question, an issue to be taken up later, I think. Um, and then I guess another question would be how this, how this might apply in LLC cases. Um, you know, it, it's a corporation for management purposes, but it's it's a partnership with pass-through liability for, for tax purposes. I mean, do you have the the um, the corporate management having the authority to file the tax returns, um, such that you have the exception that the court has applied for um, for Chapter 12 for for Chapter 11 cases to distinguish that? Um, Jack, our tax guy, what do you think?
2: well you know those are those are great questions and of course the the services position is notwithstanding the fact that um, the statutes, both the bankruptcy code and the internal revenue code can't get there for them. they believe administratively um, those responsibilities rest with the with the um, the uh, for example a chapter seven trustee of a partnership um, so I think that the the service is going to, the IRS is going to take the position that uh, that what we're talking about here in Hall is the uh, uh, question about uh, a separate taxable entity for capital gains taxes, and we'll attempt to distinguish other types or categories of taxes and tax responsibilities. So I, although I think Joe is right, and Susan, I think what you're, Suggesting is correct if you're going to read this thing uh, in an honest fashion. I think the service is going to take the position that no, for employment taxes, uh, for other types of, of uh, 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 farm taxes, for various trust fund taxes, uh, the estate and anyone who's a responsible party in relation to that estate uh, is going to have to uh, uh, pay for an account for those taxes. Okay, now
0: Jeff. Given, given the uh, problems presented by Hall that uh, particularly Joe highlighted and the unanswered questions raised by Hall that all of you have alluded to, uh, do you think there's any strong prospect of a congressional fix of Hall anytime soon?
3: There's discussion about a congressional fix, and in fact Senator Grassley, who introduced the language which uh, was uh, – dissected by the Supreme Court has come out and said he intends to introduce a legislative fix. Uh, Jack and I have been working uh, with Senator Grassley's office frankly ever since BAPS EPA came out uh, discussing what a fix might look like and not only have we been talking about a fix to deal with uh, the problems that uh, we've identified in hall but there are a lot of other problems in 1222, and if we go back and talk about the Ian artful drafting, there are a lot of other things that come back to that. One of the questions Jack and Susan were bantering about: What about the LLC? What about the partnership? And I'm going to take you guys one a little further, and that is back to where Jack and Susan were, and that is, if you've got a small partnership, there's a small partnership exception to getting into the technical difficult. Uh, areas of partnership tax law called Section 6231 of the Bankruptcy of the Tax Code. So, if you get a partnership with less than 10, you don't even have to file a partnership return. You can put that income on your 1040. So, if I you know, really want to throw this into a quagmire, most farm partnerships aren't going to be more than 10. So, they're not even going to file a 1065, which is a partnership return that you'd use in a partnership or an LLC. And so you end up way out in the ozone here and who's the taxpayer and who can do anything, who's the debtor? And those are the things that legislation that Jack and I have been talking about will try to clean up as well as well as getting into the other issues that were brought up by the Knutson case, the A-Circuit case, dealing with how do you determine the amount of tax that's to be uh, uh, deprioritized? We in Knutson, I argue the a marginal methodology which favored the uh, uh, Chapter 12 debtor. And then the other major issue that Knudsen dealt with was the question of to which the sale of which assets does it apply? Does it only apply to the sale of what the service would call capital assets, or does it apply to all assets? Because it says, you know, in 1222, you're dealing with the disposition of any farm asset. It doesn't say any capital farm asset. When again, in the regular capital or non capital assets, we're back into the interplay between tax law and bankruptcy law. And Jack and I'd like to, if we're going to do a cleanup, let's clean as many questions out as possible to make it easier for the family farmer to reorganize using Chapter 12 and to not be stymied by taxes.
2: Yeah, and David, as you know, Dave, as you know, the. Uh, When we're talking about bankruptcy and tax, you you have the opportunity to come by it from the bankruptcy side or from the tax side. And most of the time, the answer is that you have to come by it from both sides. And that means separate committees in the House and Senate and very specific requirements on tax legislation beginning in the House.
0: Well, last thing, I wonder if we can come back to Jack's earlier comment about what we take away from Hall in terms of the approach the Supreme Court is likely to take in bankruptcy cases going forward. And Jack used the trilogy of text, context, and purpose with the first two far outweighing the third. Uh, and Jack, missing from your list, is prior practice of the state of the law before this particular provision was enacted. Uh, That's of course of special interest when we think, for example, about the uh, Radlax case that we're all waiting to see. any of the people on the podcast want to add anything to, to Jack's comments in terms of what we could possibly learn from Hall of predictive value in terms of how the Supreme Court approaches bankruptcy issues?
1: Um, you know, I guess from my perspective, as as I see it, the court certainly um, can, as it did here, insist on a narrow construction of certain statutory provisions, even when that's contrary to um, overall practice and precedent the overall administration of bankruptcy and how you handle it. Um, But what I see also is that the court really does care about whether the bankruptcy system is working smoothly, And, and maybe that's Jack's context, because I think that if the justices had not believed that Chapter 13 cases would have been really disrupted and if they had not found a way, some rationale to avoid the impact in Chapter 11 corporate cases, that the decision would have been very different. And, and I take that in part from the kinds of questions that I was getting at oral argument um, where the court really wanted to know how this worked in practice and, um, and, and the fact that they focused so much on Chapter 13 here and were able to come up with a way around 11. So as, as I look at RADLACs, um, I think the court could also construe the statutory language literally um, despite historical practice, despite the overall bankruptcy policy, um, but as I looked at the transcript in Radlax, I, I see the court likewise being concerned about the smooth functioning of the system and, and concerned about creditors, um, perhaps even more than debtors, um, and so I, I see this as, as maybe forecasting something for the lender.
0: Well, maybe that tells us something not only about Radlax, but tells us about the future of Stern against Marshall. But but what clearly the three of you have told us is, is a lot more that we need to know about the Hall case That I know is going to be of, of tremendous value. Uh, for those of you that are interested in obtaining a more complete understanding of, of Susan's position, Susan, I know that, that obviously your briefs to the Supreme Court are available online. Is there... Anything else? Are you thinking about writing anything about the, the Hall case that people should be watching for?
1: Um, I did commit to write something for Bloomberg News, and that should be coming out shortly. And I'm, I'm sure I'll end up writing other things here and there.
0: And I'm, Joe and Jack, as I may have neglected to mention, I hope not. Uh, the two of you, of course, did an amicus brief in Hall. Uh, Anything else that I should alert our listeners to that they should watch for from one or both of you? Um,
2: I, I have coming out an article on, um, in uh, the BNA Journal on Hall, and I have in the uh, AIRA Journal an article looking at Hall and the two Chapter 13 cases I talked about and this, uh, this trilogy of, in, of text, context, and purpose should be out in the next couple of months.
0: That's great. Thank you again to the three of you. Uh, Very grateful to you for for spending this time making Hall and the issues going forward more understandable.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you very much for allowing us to participate.